welcome, glad to see all of you. Uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the meaninglessness we run into. One of the places we run into a lack of meaning can be in our work. And those of you who remember getting the newspaper every Sunday morning and looking forward to reading the comics, somebody sent me this Dilbert comic that talks about meaninglessness at work. He says, my job doesn't have any meaning. And then his dog says, if your employer added meaning to your job, would you agree to a cut in pay? No. I guess we just found out the economic value of meaning. <laughs> we're all searching for meaning, and there's, we're all willing to pay a different price for that meaning. But the reality is that we also live in a world where there's a lot of meaninglessness. That regardless of our ability and our attempt to try to build something and create something and protect something, that we're left feeling meaningless. And it actually leads us asking a number of questions. What's the point? Am I significant? Is there meaning to anything? Am I wasting my life? Is all of this pointless? There's an atheist psychiatrist named Irvin Yalom. He calls this existential anxiety. It's a normal part of our humanity, but it's a really lonely, empty, and oftentimes broken place as we're trying to figure out where do we find meaning. We're in the midst of a sermon series on the Psalms. It's called the Psalms, Psalms of Ascent. The, um, what do we call it? Songs for the Road, Psalms of Ascent. We took a break last week uh, because it was Compassion Sunday and we're picking back up today with Psalm 127. But Psalms of Ascent, just to give you some background, they are some of the Psalms that the Israelites read together, sang together, encouraged one another as they were traveling to Israel to be able to, um, to Jerusalem, to be able to really focus on some celebrations that they were going to be a part of. And so imagine that we're walking together, we're going up to the mountains, and we're just having some dialogue. And oftentimes the dialogue came back to the character of God. Well, today is no different. So I want to start out with reading a reading of Psalm 127, and then we'll dive in and see kind of what we can grab from that. Psalm 127, verses 1 through 5. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Let me give you a little bit of background on this particular psalm before, before we unwrap some of the meaning behind it. This is a wisdom psalm. It was written by Solomon. Solomon is known for doing wisdom literature. He wrote Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, Proverbs, all of those different books in the Bible. Uh, so he wrote this psalm as well. And oftentimes when you look at it, it, it kind of seems like it's two pieces of wisdom literature. And I want to argue that the, the two actually dovetail together. That the first part of the passage is the principle, and the second part of the passage is an illustration. So keep that in mind, um, kind of as we're walking through this, I think that will be really helpful. 
But the first thing we need to start with is back at the very beginning where it's talking about everything is in vain, verses 1 through 2a. There's three areas that we see this vanity. The first is that, you know, unless the Lord builds the house, so there's, there's vanity in building, there's vanity in creating. It doesn't matter what we do, there's vanity in it. And watching over the city, protecting, we build things, we build our careers, we build our families, and then we protect it. But the psalmist is saying, well, there's vanity in that. And then the third one, we rise up early and stay up late. We do whatever we have to do to make sure that there's food on the table. But again, it's all in vain. So what does that word vain even mean? Well, the dictionary definition of vain is this useless, ineffectual, empty. Everything that we attempt to just dig into, to dive into, to spend our time in, is empty. You know, as I was preparing for today and I was thinking about that, I realized that um, I was planning on talking about meaning, but what's the point? So, amen, and you can all go home. <laughs> ah, just kidding, but it does leave us in that place. It's like, why, why bother? Why bother doing anything? It's, you know, we, this is really heard in the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, another one of those pieces of wisdom literature. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. That's the cry of Solomon's um, prayer right here. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Now, there's two ways that we can read about this meaningless. On the one hand, we can read about meaningless, and we can say that it's prescriptive of the way we're supposed to be, the way that we're supposed to feel. We're supposed to feel meaningless. Life is meaningless. The other way that we can read it is that we can say, no, actually, it's a description of something that went wrong. And I want to recommend that it's the second. It's the description of something that went wrong. But to figure out what went wrong, we need to go backwards in the Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats in front of you. But Genesis tells the story of God's creation. And what's beautiful is the, the Bible itself is all of these stories, all of these books, all of these authors combined in one place, but it's one big story. It's God's meta-narrative. Everything connects and overlaps, and it all starts in Genesis. So in Genesis, God creates. God creates night. God creates day. God creates the moons. God creates the stars. God creates the animals. God creates all of creation. And then, in his image, God creates female and male. Not only does he create humanity, but he gives us a job. He gives us work to rule over everything that he made. So in that account, when we look back at Genesis, our desire to work and protect is part of how God made us. He created us in his image to want to be creators just like him. So our desires to work and protect and build aren't, aren't bad in and of themselves. The problem is that they were intended to be in conjunction with God's agenda. So in, in the garden, Adam and Eve, when they, were, when they were created, they were made to work and rule, but it was this partnership. It was God's agenda, and then they fit within that. Well, something went wrong in the garden. In the garden, the um, humans were told that they could rule over everything, but to stay away from the one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And you probably can guess from our humanity, we have this temptation to go to the very thing we're told not to go to. And so they eat from this, from this tree, and all of a sudden something happens. We refer to it as the fall. It's the moment when all of the relationships with God broke. Human relationship between us and God became broken. Our relationships between each other were broken. Our relationships with creation was broken. And our relationship with the intertwining of what it means to work and to protect was broken. And in that, instead of resting in God's agenda, all of a sudden, we feel like we have to toil. We have to work. We have to try to get and make ends meet. We have to try to protect. We have to try to do all the things that God created us to just rest in him in. And as a result, life feels meaningless. Now let me tell you something else about the Psalms. The Psalms conjure up emotion on purpose. All of the Psalms do this. They, it starts with this emotional response. There's anger, there's hurt, there's fear. In our case, there's meaninglessness. Emotional response, it's normal, it's good, it's how we're created. And then the psalmist does something brilliant. They go back to what we can rely on because emotions come and go. But what we believe in our head, what we know in our head, what we know in our heart about God is what remains. So we're going to get a glimpse of both. Right now, he's really getting us to, uh, to feel what it's like to, to be in the midst of this meaninglessness. So I want you to think about that for yourself. Where do you feel meaningless? And it may not be right now, but where, at some point in your life, where have you felt like there just isn't a point? One that came up for me, one that I realized, um, I started looking at this passage right before I went on vacation. That was a bad idea because I kept reflecting on meaninglessness. So I was, um, we went to Maine. My in-laws have a, a house on the island off the coast, and one of the things that we do almost every day is we go kayaking. And my favorite place to go kayaking is in what's it's called the basin. It's uh, the ocean water comes in and fills up and then empties out. And it's like a, it looks like a big lake. And so I'm in the middle of this, this basin in this kayak, and my husband David had gone off somewhere else. So I'm just sitting there alone, um, still. And all of a sudden, I start thinking about this. What, what's the point of working for 30 years if then, at some point, your job ends? What's the point of me giving my entire heart and soul to my kids and I can be there and protect them and raise them and then they move away? What's the point in getting up every morning when we're all dying anyhow. I like really hit this existential anxiety moment in a kayak in Maine. And I started to cry and then I started to sob. I just, I just, couldn't, I just couldn't find any hope in that moment. My husband David kayaks over. He's like, do you, do you need me to pull you back in? And I'm like, maybe, because <laughs> everything is meaningless. <laughs> uh, here was the disillusionment for me. Because I was studying this and I was thinking about meaninglessness anyway, I truly thought that if I got in a kayak and I went and sat in the middle of that basin, surrounded by God's goodness, 
and his beauty, that that feeling of meaninglessness would go away. And it didn't. And that's when I felt so broken. We have meaninglessness in our lives. We don't need to try to explain it away to each other. It's there. It's real. And that's what Solomon is talking about. He's, we're walking alongside each other, we're going up to Jerusalem, and we're talking about, this is just hard. Life is meaningless. But then he does something interesting. He gives this, just half of a, of a verse that talks about the thing that's opposite of toil, opposite of meaningless work, opposite of the void that we fill. Here's the second part of verse 2. For he grants sleep to those he loves which can also be translated, for while they sleep, he provides for. This is that imagery that takes us back to the garden. We toil, we work, we feel like, you know, things are meaningless, we're broken in that. Yet God gives us rest. It's interesting that he worked for six days and then he rested. He asks us to follow the Sabbath, not because it's a rule to follow, but because rest is the opposite of toil. Sleep actually represents, in Hebrew, represents God's presence, God's protection, God's peace. So Solomon is putting us in this place where we're, we're calling out, gosh, what's the point? Things feel meaningless. And then he gives this like one-liner that's almost easy to miss, for God grants us sleep. It's the idea of the baby and the baby carrier. That baby's awake at one point in the trip, falls asleep, but the trip still happens, right? I put my kids in my backpack when they're little and I'm still going up the mountain. They notice when I'm at the beginning of the mountain, they notice when I'm at the end of the mountain, and they don't know anything in between. Why well, did all the work in that period of time? They didn't need to worry. God gives us the gift of sleep because it forces us to go to this place of dependence on him. Isn't it crazy that he created us to have to sleep every single day? Is it possible that he knew that our human side would constantly struggle with this desire to do the things that we think should happen versus trusting him and what he knows should happen, and so he makes us sleep? Because then we, can't, we don't have any control. So Solomon's doing this amazing thing. We're, 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 built, to, uh, we're built to rest, but, and we're built to work. And there's a paradox in that, right? How do we manage both? We've got to go back and forth between rest and work. But we can do that if we're connected with God, and it's in resting in Him that we have that ability. So that's what's going on in the first part of this passage. Then we get to the second part, which seems like it is a totally different piece of wisdom literature. So let me tell you one thing, and I said it earlier, but I'm going to go back to this. The first part of this psalm is really the principle. And the principle is this, that God gives us that our desire to find meaning is empty. There's emptiness in our toil, but God gives us rest. And so the second part of this psalm is really going to tell us what it means to rest in God. And by that, be prepared for this, it is not a to-do list of things to do. It's a recognition of his character and who he says he is. And the fact that we can trust that in his character. 
So I want to set you up for that because the second part sounds so different than the first that I'm gonna, I need to give you a little bit of a framework. All right, so um, let me reread it for you, and then we'll talk. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. All right, regardless of whether this is your first time in church or your 30th time in church, I'm 30th year in church, I'm guessing that at some point you've heard all of this part of the psalm, if not part of this part of the psalm. So we're all coming to this part of the passage with preconceived notions about what it means. And I would like to challenge us to get rid of those preconceived notions because uh, oftentimes when we come with those, we can misunderstand and misinterpret unintentionally, misunderstand and misinterpret the passage. I think, I think we've been wired to do this a little bit. So we are given stories, kid stories to read, or uh, music to listen to, or art to interpret, and the whole goal is for us to kind of read meaning into it for ourselves. So I may listen to a song and think it means one thing, you may listen to a song and think it means another thing, and that's okay, that's the beauty of art. What's hard is we do that same thing in scripture. We read our own interpretation into that. You know, I was thinking about some of the places, the problem is that when we do that, we misunderstand the intent of the, of the author to the original audience. Okay, so it's not, we weren't the ones that God gave the ability to write the scriptures, right? These scriptures are God-inspired, so we need to figure out what it meant to the original author as he, was, he or she was communicating that to the original audience, all right? Here's the importance of it. Think about some of the fairy tales that we have heard and tell our kids, and when we think about it, uh, what we have told our kids is different from the intent of the author. Here's an example, Peter Pan. Did you know that Peter Pan, in the original story, started to fall in love with Wendy as she was caring for the Lost Boys? How about the three little pigs? Did you know the wolf and the three little pigs ate the first and second pigs after he blew their houses down? Like, that's just rude. <laughs> How about Cinderella? Did you know the stepsisters in Cinderella in the original story cut off parts of their feet to fit into the slipper? Now, of course, we don't want to tell those stories to our kids because that's brutal. It would be unkind. And obviously, Walt Disney didn't want to tell that story either. So there's times to change the story, but here's the point. The point is we, we will relay that information to our kids based off of what we've been told over the years based off of our own experiences, and we will censor part of it based off of what we're comfortable telling our kids. We do that same thing with scripture, and that's a really dangerous place to go. So I want to take us to a place where we can really explore what did Solomon mean for the Israelites when he was writing this part of the passage. And then from there, we can figure out how that principle applies to us. All right, before we do that, let me tell you how I think we read this passage. This is how we interpret it. If you work hard enough to be a good person, God will reward you with children. As such, children are a gift from God to those he loves the most. The more children you have, the more blessed and happy you are. 
It is a privilege to fill your quiver with children, raising a houseful of them to shoot out into the world, to share their faith, and give you a meaningful legacy to leave behind when you die. That's how we read this passage. Here's the problem. If something couldn't have happened, if it couldn't have been true to the original audience, it can't be true for us. But it's got to be true to the audience. Okay? Now, automatically someone in here is going to head coverings. We're not... Totally different conversation. That's not a principle. That's a cultural norm. We're talking about actual principles. So here are some of the principles that this implies that could not have been true. The first is this. The Bible does not indicate that God's love and blessing are reserved for those who are involved in procreation. If that was the case, Jesus would have an issue. Because he never got married and he never had kids. So God's love cannot be reserved for those who have children. Second thing. Israelites who did have children would have never encouraged them to leave by shooting them into the community. Here's what we need to understand about the Israelite community. Being together was survival. It wasn't just preference. It wasn't just, hey, it gives us, fulfills our loneliness. It was, it was survival. You would never, ever, ever send your kids out away from the community, A, it wouldn't have been good for them because they couldn't survive on their own. B, it wasn't good for the community because the community would be negatively impacted. In fact, there are laws, the Israelite laws, against sending your kids out into the community. So if we are thinking that this passage says that our job is to raise our kids and then shoot them out into the community, we are misunderstanding pa the passage because that was not what it meant to the original audience. Third thing, while children are absolutely a gift to God, from God, and that is true in Scripture, <laughs> their purpose is not to fulfill the legacy of their parents. Again, one more place where we take Scripture and we read into it. Now, I think part of this is because we want, goes back to the meaning thing, right? If I shoot my kids out and they share their faith with other people, I feel good because I feel like I have meaning. If my kids become my legacy, I feel good because then I feel like I have a purpose. So I think we misread it into this passage, but that's not what it's saying. All right, so if that's not what it's saying, what in the world is it saying? Well, I want to go back to the fact that this is an illustration of the first part of the passage. Okay, so we had this, you know, things are meaningless because we... Um, there's this been a separation between us and God, and what was intended to be good and a part of his agenda became meaningless because we try to do things on our own. But God gives us rest in him because he knows that following his agenda is the thing that is best for us and it's best for all of creation. This part of the passage then is going to talk about what it means to rest in God. Okay? First thing. Let's pull this back up. Um, no, sorry. I was rethinking for a second. Before we pull this back up, I need to help us go to the point where we're the Israelites. There is such a big cultural difference between how we live life and what life is like for us and what life was like for the, the Israelites that as I was wrestling through this the last couple weeks, I realized, gosh, what can we do to kind of imagine 
the significance of this passage, and to do that, we need to pretend like we're Israelites, all right? So I want you to pretend like you are um, a, a senior, very senior man or woman, and you have no family. It's just you, okay? Because you don't have any family members, you don't have access to any security, anything. You're very, very vulnerable. You don't have a grocery store, because they didn't exist. There's no such thing as a hospital, or an ambulance, or a nursing care facility. There is no 401k. There's a court system, but there's not a fair court and justice system. So you're really dependent on anybody else that may take you in. All of a sudden, if we go into this thinking that we're the ones that are being provided for the passage change changes. Here's what verse 4 and 5 says. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. I want to just start with that. This idea of children being a heritage from the Lord, it's really this idea that we as seniors who have no family, that God provides for us even when we have nothing. Because in our Israelite culture, no one gets left behind. Nobody leaves the aging person that doesn't have a family to themselves. Children that are, that are born into our community, children that are raised into our community, that's a corporate idea of children. It's not about me as an individual. It's about us corporately. God provides children to, as a symbol of caring. So the first thing we can learn about what it means to rest in God is that we can rest that he is a God that provides. That if we as the senior woman or man who has no access to anything, that he provides for us in that place. That's the first principle. Second one, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. This is the imagery, and remember, psalms are imagery, it's poetry, okay? This is the image of protection. Not only do we as a community care for one another by providing food and uh, relationships, but there's protection too. In fact, the oldest sons of the community were responsible for protecting everybody else, and they would, they would do so at all costs. Now again, if we are the individuals who are, who are older, and frail, and we have no one else, the idea of God providing security for us changes everything. There's this tension. It's, it goes back and forth with God provides, God cares for us. Now, we don't get to be lazy. Okay? There's nothing about this passage that's saying, well, you don't have to work. Paul, in the New Testament, says, you want to eat, you're going to work. I mean, that's not, we're not talking about swinging to this other end. But there's this tension, because on the one side, our humanity tends to go to this place where we say, gosh, meaningless, meaningless, I guess I won't do anything. Or we go to this side, meaningless, meaningless, I'm going to do whatever I can to be in control. And what God is saying, what Solomon's telling us, how he's reflecting God's character back to us, is he's saying, no, 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 no. Yes, life is meaningless if you're after your own agenda, but you can rest in God. And you can rest in God because he provides and he protects. So that takes us to, to the main point of our passage. The main thing I want you to remember 
as you're processing this in the weeks to come. A life that pursues its own significance is empty, while a life that trusts in God's character rests in his agenda. Here's the one thing that this passage does not say. It does not say that when we become followers of Jesus, when we put our hope in the God of the universe, that we will no longer feel meaningless. Feelings of meaninglessness and hopelessness and despair are with us as long as we're here on earth. It's not a knock on your faith or on your Christianity if you're struggling. Instead, the hope is that in the midst of our meaninglessness, in that feeling that we have, that we remember in our heads that God is true to his character, that he guards, that he protects, that he cares for. The best part of this psalm I missed until yesterday the very last verse, and it's the one that leaves us with hope. The last verse says this, they will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. The idea here is that in the Israelite community, that whether it was a physical city or people living together in tents, that there was some sort of a city gate, also known as a court. That's where judicial decisions were made. And oftentimes, whoever the judge was could be easily swayed with money, with prestige. So if we go back to being the single woman or man who's older and we have nobody to take care of us, there's nobody to help us advocate against these injustices. This was the place that oftentimes oppression and injustice and wrongs occurred unless the Israelite family sent their oldest son to the court gate because the job of the oldest son was to advocate for the person who had been accused. Isn't it beautiful that God gives us a preview of the son that he sends to stand at the gate as we face our own misery and brokenness and meaninglessness and oppression and injustice and fallenness. That it is in Christ standing at that gate on our behalf that justice is served. And the hope is that while we live in the today, in the now and the not yet, where Jesus has come and established his kingdom and his rule and reign, that we're still in that in-between time where brokenness and hardship still happens. But he's promised to come back again and to restore all things back to himself. Where we will be fulfilled in that place of where meaning is found, not in the things that we try to do, but in God himself. And because of that, it leads us to state with confidence, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Amen.